a haiku for beavers. My sweet beaver friends, gnawing wood and building dams, you move river bends. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. This week, we're talking about the largest rodent in North America. With major teeth and a slap and tail, you guessed it, we're talking about beavers. My name is Sarah Chitzaz, and I'll be your host for this half hour long Ode to the Beaver. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was created in the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, in the territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, or so-called Vancouver. Beavers played a very significant role in the North American fur trade, on which the country of so-called Canada was built. It is important to note that Indigenous peoples have been trading with one another for thousands of years before the colonization of so-called Canada, and before the North American fur trade, which lasted for about 250 years, began. As a result of the fur trade and the colonial value placed on accumulating wealth, beaver populations across North America were decimated. Recorded history about the fur trade is often written from a colonial perspective. We encourage our listeners to seek out the histories of Indigenous trappers and other Indigenous peoples to better understand the significance of the fur trade in the context of the colonization of so-called Canada and the land we are on today. If you would like to learn more about the history of the fur trade, a great starting place is the fur trade module in the Indigenous Canada course that is offered for free by the University of Alberta on Coursera. A link to the course can be found in today's show notes. This week, we're talking about beavers. Beavers have been considered a symbol of Canada for many years and were officially named one of Canada's national symbol animals in 1975. Today, we're going to talk more about the importance of the beaver beyond their symbolic significance. I'll be joined by Hannah Cunningham and Dylan Hall to talk about Glynis Hood's book, The Beaver Manifesto. We'll also talk about a newsworthy story of the colonization of the Alaskan tundra by beavers. But first, let's talk about some beaver fun facts. Sometime between 10,000 and 50,000 years ago, there were giant beavers, which are estimated to have been about six feet long, weighing about 220 pounds. These jumbo rodents had incisor teeth that were six inches long. That's an awfully long tooth. Beavers are called nature's engineers because they use sticks to create dams and rivers. These dams create ponds that serve as their homes. Beavers love to build, rivers be damned. Beavers slap their tails as a warning sound. Now that's alarming. Did you know that beavers are the largest rodent in North America? And capybaras are the only rodent in the world that are larger than beavers. Beavers' teeth never stop growing. They can actually grow at a rate of four to six centimeters per year. But all of the gnawing on wood beavers do keep their teeth ground down to a mere two to two and a half centimeters long. I guess the bark really is worse than the bite. What did the beaver say to the river? You can run, but you can't tide. 
That was all for today's Beaver Fun Facts. Shifting streams, let's talk about the Beaver Manifesto. Published in 2011, Glynis Hood's The Beaver Manifesto is a nonfiction tale of the incredible beaver. It provides an overview of the evolution of the beaver into the animal we know and love today. The Beaver Manifesto also discusses the great toll the fur trade took on beaver populations, modern approaches to managing human-beaver conflicts, and the symbolism of the beaver for Canadians. I was joined by Terra Informer Hannah Cunningham and Terra Informa alum Dylan Hall to talk more about the Beaver Manifesto. Let's listen to the discussion now. My name is Dylan Hall, and I'm studying environmental history at the U of A, and I remember all of those years as a Terra Informer with great joy, and I'm glad <laughs> to be back. We're happy to have you back. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Hannah Cunningham, still a current Terra Informer, and yeah, I am working as a research assistant at the U of A right now. So to start out talking about beavers, what is your favorite beaver fun fact? Oh my gosh, there are so many from this book. (laughs) I really loved learning that they have valves on their ears and noses and eye membranes and that their eye muscles help them see underwater and that they have lined inner lips all things I didn't know that I thought were very cool. Yeah, mine's very similar. I loved the description of all the amazing things about the physiology of the beaver and talking about how all the sensory organs are lined up so that they all like peek above the water when they're gliding through. I thought that was so, so cool. Because then you picture the beaver and you picture the little eyes and the nose and stuff just kind of gliding through the water. And yeah, loved that. Yeah. I also just love that there were giant beavers. I cannot get over that. <laughs> and like picturing just how massive they were, I think is kind of incredible. Did you have any other takeaways from reading Glennis Hood's The Beaver Manifesto that you found to be particularly interesting or stuck with you? The way that the author gets across the like tenacity and sort of the spirit of the beaver, I think really, I don't know, it just, it's really nice. And I feel like there's a lot of good sort of parallels and reflections to like people and how we operate together. And yeah, I think especially in a time right now where the world is kind of, it's crazy and it's, tough out there in a lot of different ways I think thinking about this little animal that's made its way and like survived through all these different like environmental and different world events and being hunted almost to extinction I think that that sort of sense of tenacity and perseverance just this read through really struck with me I think it was a nice a nice feeling to have. 
Yeah, totally. That's such a big question. There are like a few different things. So maybe we'll bounce off each other and think of, of more than one. But I would agree with that. Like I grew up east of Edmonton in the region known as Amiskwichi and known as the Beaver Hills. And there were beaver all around. I remember driving around growing up and seeing beaver dams and seeing lodges and realizing that there was a time that there were no beaver in Elk Island and in the Beaver Hills and that I'm like had history been different that it could have been a lot worse that there might not have been any beaver still today in those areas really would be so sad if there were no beaver and I'm so glad that there are beaver there and realizing that there are as well as like studying studying environmental history it can so often be a story of accelerating decline of life and realizing that the beavers that this is a story that is more complicated than that that there was this huge decline of beavers propelled by capitalism and the fur trade um but then since then there has been a resurgence that there were like i think the number was like 60 million to 300 million on the continent in the 1500s to almost being completely extinct in the early 1900s to now there being 20 million-ish beaver in Canada is inspiring. And the the beaver, I guess, like, if I can do two takeaways, (laughs) the other big one is that that beavers are so important to the health of ecosystems, that they are this keystone species, that they're essential for being resilient to drought, that in places where there are beavers, there are ponds. When there's drought and where there are ponds, there's so much life that relies on water so that they're they're really important for wetlands and maintaining wetlands, I think is really important and something I want people to know. Yeah, picturing the that area east of Edmonton without all of those little I can't even comprehend the amount of little pocket ponds that you, if you're out in the area, if you're walking around that you come across or that you see when you're driving through some of the side roads and stuff like that, it would be such a different landscape. Yeah. And to think of how close we potentially were to that landscape being so different through the loss of beavers is kind of staggering to think about. But even just reading, I think there is one quote about um, the numbers of beaver pelts recorded by HBC. And I think it was that between 1769 and 1868, there were 4.7 million beaver pelts in the auction houses of Britain. And those years aren't even the peak years of the trade for beaver pelts. And the 4.7 million doesn't include any of the pelts that weren't considered good enough quality or that were discarded. And I just like, what a staggering number of beaver to have been killed for and harvested for their pelts. It was just kind of shocking to read. Like that's a, that's a lot of beaver. Yeah. Yeah, There was the beautiful example, I guess, of, of a scientific and historical study where she talked about photography in the North and planes that flew over different areas and comparing like the year of 2002, which at the time she wrote this was the worst drought on record in Canada, 
1950, which was not nearly as severe of a drought, but had way less water and way less wetland over the study region because there were so many fewer beaver in 1950 than there were in 2002 because they had been, the fur trade didn't end in 1867 <laughs> when Canada became a country. So I think a lot of times people think of the fur trade as only existing before Canada was a country, but that it continued into like the early 1900s and the, the 1920s were even worse than the 1950s, that it really, even though it was like a time of abundant water, there was almost, it looked like a bomb had dropped, she said, in these old photos, because that was when the beaver were probably at their least abundant. Yeah, it does make me think, though, I agree, Hannah, the tenacity of them and the resilience of beavers. I love, just a random aside, <laughs> just like... I don't know. I'm a big fan of rodents. I love rodents. <laughs> I think they're so neat and just like the tiny little like working hard underfoot. I find them very endearing. And yeah, I loved the, I think there was a little excerpt or copy of a letter written when they were bringing the beaver back to Elk Island. And yeah. $75 for, was it three beavers maybe just to, to help starting to bring them back into the park. And the rodent lover in me is like, yes, from the brink back to success, a classic rodent success story. Like <laughs> <laughs> I love that for them. Yeah. And I guess it's all like it, we're painting it a bit as a picture of the beaver being totally fine now and it's not totally the case because mm -hmm. there is conflict today between property owners farmers people who are working for parks or working for the government and the environment where roads get flooded beavers come and chew people's trees down beavers are living in cities and chewing trees down but the what they're facing now is very different than large-scale harvesting of beaver pelts it's a different conflict today yeah mm -hmm. almost kind of a to me seems like a a trickier one to deal with I think in a way just because I think as I think uh, she touched on this a bit in the book just the bit of human not nature, but like characteristic maybe to, you know, that frustration in having our progress or like our stuff interrupted, which, you know, I can imagine if you're somebody who's getting constantly flooded by, you know, the work of beavers, I can't imagine that would be frustrating. <laughs> so I try to sympathize a little bit, but it's a different kind of conflict, like you're saying, Dylan, that we're kind of wrestling with now where it's like, okay, we, there's that understanding, at least by some people that they're important and an important integral part of the landscape, but there's that kind of just inherent butting heads as they're trying to get their stuff done. And then we're trying to get our stuff done. And I feel like that's a little bit trickier of a conflict to mitigate. It'll be interesting to see what happens as like cities grow, like suburbs spread out, stuff like that. 
That was Hannah Cunningham, Dylan Hall, and myself talking about Glennis Hood's book, The Beaver Manifesto. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. Let's dig our teeth back into the discussion. I really thought it was interesting. She kind of talked about the ways that many Canadians at least want well-behaved wildlife. They want wildlife, but they want it to do what they want it to do. And just the split personality that Canada as a country presents for itself around defining itself by the very wilderness that it nearly Mm -hmm. destroyed or that is always presented in merchandise (laughs) or as symbols at the Olympics and known to people in that way rather than out there in the world. I did appreciate the way that there's like thinking of those conflicts, thinking of them building dams and kind of like materially challenging humans all the time. (laughs) I appreciated her stories about being asked to go and blow up their dams or shoot them and her looking to ways that people are trying to resolve that in other ways, like with flow devices such as the castor master (laughs) and the beaver deceiver (laughs) tm you did bring up symbolism and how Dennis head does talk a bit about how beavers have become a major symbol in canada and so when i was reading it i was kind of wondering if either of you or both of you have anything that you feel like beavers really symbolize for you. I think similar to what I said earlier, that sort of workhorse mentality, (laughs) I think that's something in a lot of children's imagery of beavers too. I feel like there was stuff when I was younger, books and stuff where it's always the beavers a construction worker or something like that so I think that kind of image always sticks with me they're a handy animal getting the work done which I like that's fun but I think specifically in thinking about this book and kind of how I think about beavers what would the word be for it I think just like self-determination beavers are always doing stuff for them and working so hard at it but then you know, benefiting everybody else along too. So yeah, self-determination or like sort of like that collective good. I don't know. Even though I feel like they're kind of just working along doing their own thing, they benefit so many other animals and like the environment and stuff like that. So maybe I'll think of a better word as we keep talking, but those are some of the ones that I think beaver symbolized to me at this moment. (laughs) I would agree with that. Like the tenacity and the resilience of beavers, they sim- they symbolize those things to me that like there are beings out there who are doing things for themselves and the rest of the ecosystem, despite what they've been through, despite yeah. capitalism. <laughs> and, um, and that is a, that, that's a great thing for me to focus on. Same. I think, yeah, resilience is definitely one uh, thing that beavers symbolize. 
I also think it's interesting thinking about those tensions that we've kind of spoken about between beavers and humans as kind of a representation of this broader tension that we often see in media and some like societal attitudes, I think, between humans and this idea we have of nature as this like other separate thing from us that we're kind of fighting against to tame. That's a good point. Like they they symbolize a lot of things that I feel conflicted about too. Like I they symbolize the tenacity, but they also like yeah, like around the nationalism question, thinking about Canada and how they symbolize Canada to me, but like in very different ways and not always in positive ways. Like they symbolize the founding of Canada and like being essentially and and hugely including English, French, and Indigenous peoples, and those groups all being like essential in relationships that are key to the founding of Canada and that are not all incoherence all the time. The love of wildlife and charismatic megafauna and tensions around like wanting to get people to love wildlife and love the world but also not wanting to just play into selling ideas and having that turn into tangible benefit for beavers and moose and all of the rest so it symbolizes a lot of contradictions <laughs> for me about how I feel about Canada and how I feel about the environment and all of that and I guess also like it symbolizes a world beyond me that I am so glad exists. Wow. The duality of beaver. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that brings us to our last question. (laughs) Uh, On a scale of one to five beaver tail slaps, how much did you like this book? And would you recommend it to others? I would give it a four beaver tail slaps. I don't know why, but I get nervous about voting things five out of five. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) but it was very good. And yeah, it's a quick read. Um, It's easy to read. And I didn't skim through the reference list or like the bookshelf list at the end. But um, yeah, I'm, I think next I'll look through that because yeah, lots of like um, cool older resources and stuff um, listed that as I'm not a historian. So I think there's a lot that I could learn from some of those things. So um, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I have to agree. Like four beaver tail slaps, one, two, three, four on a big wide flat <laughs> pond. Um, it was easy, it was accessible, it was short, it was very readable. Even my quibbles about the the complexity of history, like she might not have talked about history at all. She could have been writing as an ecologist and she is an ecologist and she could have only been writing about beavers in the relatively near present and not talked about the fur trade and not talked about capitalism, but she did. And she managed to do that in a pretty short amount of time. So not fully five stars because I always think you got to talk about colonialism, but that's just me. And overall 
love the book and and think many people would benefit from reading it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think four out of five <laughs> slaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also really enjoyed it. I appreciate that it's short. It makes it a lot more accessible. I agree. Some addressing of colonialism and how intertwined that is with capitalism would be very beneficial. And I would love to see an updated version giving us a little, you know, what's happened in the last now 11 years for beaver or beavers. That could be so fun. Mm -hmm. That was Hannah Cunningham, Dylan Hall, and myself talking about the Beaver Manifesto by Glennis Hood. The inspiration for giving beavers the spotlight this week came from a piece we talked about in our update on retreating ice and other stories in our Wrapping Up 2021 with Loose Ends episode from December 2021. That is, beavers have been making the news for months now as they are colonizing more and more of the Alaskan tundra. Warmer temperatures in the north and retreating ice is opening up more habitable space for beavers. Unfortunately, beaver dams can contribute to further permafrost melting as they reroute waterways. Melting permafrost can release more greenhouse gases and further accelerate the warming of our atmosphere. According to Inside Climate News, beaver colonization in Alaska is causing concern over their impacts on food sources for people, deteriorating water quality, and making navigating waterways increasingly difficult. While beaver colonization may sound like a purely bad event for the environment, it's a little more complicated than that. One example of the complexity of beavers' effects on the environment can be seen in their impacts on local fish. Beaver dams can alter what is called the hydrology of streams. In other words, dams can slow the flow of water, which can create wetlands, raise the water table, and lower the oxygen content of water. These changes can restrict access of fish to their spawning grounds, and lower oxygen levels in the water can also pose risks to fish health. On the other hand, some of these beaver-created ponds can also foster really robust fish populations. Fish populations in Alaska are crucial in maintaining food security for both local humans and the local wild food chain. While the environmental impacts of beaver dams on local wildlife and ecosystems are a complex issue, one thing is for sure. For better or for worse, beaver populations are changing and reshaping northern landscapes. Well, this episode is getting a little long in the tooth, so I think that's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Sarah Titzes. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Special thanks to Hannah Cunningham and Dylan Hall for the discussion, and Hannah Cunningham for producing this episode. You can reach us for comments or questions via email at tara at cjsr.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. I want to ask Glennis Hood if 
she's set up the dating service for those who want beavers and those who want them gone. Yes. She talked about wanting to do that in this book, but not having done it. And I'm curious if she has. I wonder how successful it would be. <laughs> I feel like it'd be pretty I'm sure they could come up with a great name. Mm-hmm. Beaver meter? <gasps> Beaver meter! <laughs> right off the cuff, too. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs>